All right, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of James. If you have your Bible, your electronic device, if you don't have one, I think most of you know the routine. You can raise your hand nice and high, and the guys will be happy to let you borrow Bible if you need. We're in James chapter 4, picking up where we left off from last week, making our way through the book of James. um, Not in a very... uh, speedily manner, but uh, hopefully still one that's encouraging and edifying uh, for you. As always, we want to do all things to the glory of God uh, to bless, um, you know, our Lord and Savior. So we're here at chapter four. We're going to look at the next two verses. So verse 11 and 12, as we continue to crawl along, Uh, I entitled our message this morning, The Sin of Slander in Judging Others, just taken right out of that text um, nothing clever in terms of, uh, you know, the title, uh, but certainly something for us to, uh, to take note of, all right? So if you're there with me at James 4, I'm going to invite you to stand with me, please, as we uh, have custom here in honor of God and his word. James, of course, inspired by God's spirit, as we've been mentioning, the half-brother of Jesus, His given name really is Jacob. So if you have a Japanese Bible or Hebrew Bible, it's Jacob. Um, But James for us transliterated in English. And he writes, he pens, he says, do not, verse 11, do not speak evil of one another brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother judges his brother. He speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And then he just tells us very plainly, there is one law giver who is able to save and to destroy. And here's the stinging question. Who are you then to judge another? All right, we'll pause there. Uh, Josh prayed for us and Sarah prayed for us. So uh, why don't you take a moment, say hello to somebody, greet your neighbor, and then you may have a seat. So if you're with us last week or you caught the message, we, uh, the, the intro uh, had to do with this phrase, game changer. And, uh, and we talked about how ultimately God's grace is the uh, ultimate supreme game changer in our life, right? Just the grace of God that flips the script for all of us and, uh, and just changes us radically. Well, I have another colorful English idiom that we can explore this morning. Once again, I don't know if there's a, an exact Japanese translation, so my apologies to our uh, Japanese-speaking brothers and sisters. Uh, but this particular phrase, it's, uh, it's trash-talking. And, and again, I don't know if there's a Japanese equivalent. Uh, usually it's a term usually that's associated with sports uh, where one person or one team, right, they, they boast, uh, uh, they brag, they present themselves, uh, you know, better uh, about their abilities over their opponent or their opponents or the other team. Uh, and, and it can be, on one hand, fun, uh, maybe lighthearted, just, you know, all in kind of fun, friendly jokes, on one hand, but it, but it also can be um, arrogant and, and brash, um, you know, just mean-spirited. There, there's also that element of it. Uh, and sometimes it's used as a mind game to, uh, you know, reduce somebody's confidence, you know, kind of like psychological warfare, that kind of a thing. 
But when you think about trash talking, I, I think whether it's um, malicious or if it's just kind of friendly banter between uh, buddies, uh, it's always belittling. There, there's always an element of belittling the other person. Now, trash talking may have a, a small place uh, on the mat or in the ring or on the courts or out on the field uh, or, you know, at the start of a video game or, or whatever it may be, uh, but it, it has absolutely no place in the body of Christ, uh, in, in the church. And, and James... Um, doesn't, uh, you know, want to, his readers, I should say, doesn't want us, as we read this, the, the, the uh, church, the community there, he doesn't want them to be charged, if you will, with unchristlike conduct. And so he continues uh, here as we pick up to address what humility and the grace of God should look like and, and sound like in the Christian life. Remember that the book overall, the theme essentially is that we have faith in Christ. And if we have faith in Christ, well, it's going to be displayed. It should be worked out in the things that we do and the things that we say. That what we profess, there should be an equal sign there to then what we practice. And that's really the theme of James. We entitled our whole series just Faith That Works. It's a little bit of a play on words. Uh, but he's been talking about this in, in a little bit of a harsh way, a little bit of a, a stern way as we've entered into chapter 4 where he, he just basically calls them out as he calls us out. At times even saying, you know, you're sinners, you're double-minded, uh, you're an adulterer and adulteresses. Uh, this isn't friendly. Uh, you know, you wouldn't come and say, wow, I'm so encouraged. Right? It's, uh, uh, it's a little bit of a sting um, but he does remind us of the grace of God. And even though we might be guilty at times of these things and our fighting and our bickering, but the grace of God, he gives more grace. And what does grace then look like in our lives? How should that be played out? Well, it should be played out in how we talk about other people, how we think about other people. And so that's what he, in a sense, comes back to. This isn't the first time he's addressing our mouths. So verse 11, verse 12, he says, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. And he's going to remind us again that we are family in Christ, brothers, brethren, uh, aldophos, you know, where we get the word uh, phileo from, brotherly love, the city of Philadelphia, right, the city of brotherly love. And so we get the sense that James is saying this very uh, directly, do not speak evil of one another, family in Christ, because it was happening. And I want to submit to you that his words aren't necessarily instructive as though uh, they didn't know this, but I want to suggest to you that they're corrective, that it seems that amongst them, this community here, Christians, followers of Christ, they were struggling with a few things. And we've talked about a number of things they've been struggling with. Remember, they, they, they overall were learning that there is a difference between religion, following rules and rituals, and a, a relationship with God. What true faith, if you will, looks like. Now, many of the original audience uh, came from, as James himself came from, uh, a traditional but yet legalistic background that emphasized just 
outward conformity to rules and to rituals. And that was the emphasis, just to look the part, more than a sincere obedience from the heart, that we would do these things because we love God who first loved us. And so that's part of the equation. The other part of the equation was that they were living in this culture around them. On one hand, some of them uh, very legalistic, and then the other extreme where there is just uh, licentiousness, right? Just loose living, just partying up, living in the world, living in sin. And so they're also part of that world. And the, the temptations that were constant, luring them to live like the world, to adopt the wisdom of the world. And James engaged that as well and said, hey, be careful. Because if you want to be a friend of the world, you want to flirt with the world, you're going to make yourself an enemy of God. Remember, it even upped the ante and said, if you're in that place, uh, you're cheating on God. Adulterers and adulteresses. And so the world's way that promoted favoritism. And so he talked about, hey, be careful. Don't play favorites in the church. There shouldn't be any uh, schisms. There, uh, the world's way of pursuing power and platform and prestige and wealth and all of these things. And, um, you know, we, we, we live in similar cultural tensions. We live in similar worldly temptations. You look around the world, you know, now and it's, th those same things exist. And for some of you, uh, you can relate in a lot of ways. There's family traditions. Uh, there is, you know, following the rules and rituals of your, you know, your family and your upbringing. And that's a, a strong pull. For others of us, there's, there is this draw or lure, maybe I should say, to compromise our faith. To conform to the current culture. And embrace their definitions and, em and embrace their ways, uh, which really is just uh, a warped, skewed definition of morality and godliness, of love and acceptance and all these things. And so we looked at that again. God's way, God's wisdom looks nothing like the world's. And, and God's ways really are countercultural. That kingdom culture stands in stark contrast to what, uh, you know, the ideology and the philosophy of man today, as it did in their day. And so these are the things that they were battling and struggling with as we battle and struggle with these things too. And yet God's grace changes everything. It changes everything. It changes how we see ourselves. It changes how we see then God. God's love and grace and forgiveness and acceptance. We've said many times now, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. When we come and we're overwhelmed with God's love and his goodness and his mercy. And the reality of like, oh Lord, I'm a horrible person. I want to be honest with myself. I, I agree then with scripture that my heart is, uh, you know, it's deceitful. It's wicked. And yet the Lord, even while we're yet sinners, God demonstrated his great love for you and for me. And we're over, when we get overwhelmed by that, we're, we come into that we're like, man, Lord, how could you love me? And yet God does. 
And grace then changes the way we see ourselves and the way that we see God and his goodness and his purposes for our lives. And, and even as James opened, even the purposes for why we have struggles and trials. Grace changes our view even when we're hurting and realize when we're like, I don't like this, I don't want this, I wouldn't have written this for myself, I wouldn't have prescribed this for myself. And yet God says, listen, you can look at it through my lens and even count it as a joyful thing. To know that God's going to use that. That's an amazing thing. Right? Changes then, again, how we see the Lord ourselves. And then it should change how we then see and treat others. And he's, and he's walked into this already where he's talked about how the gospel reveals that we are one race. <laughs> we, we are the human race. We have different shades and shapes, uh, but we are all created in the image of God. And so discrimination and racism and sexism and classism and, and, and any other the social divides, uh, when it comes to the body of Christ, they are non-existent or they should be non-existent in terms of how we love and relate and, and fellowship with each other. And we talked before, it's not that we ignore them, but that we embrace them and that we, <laughs> and we uh, cherish them, we celebrate them, we realize, oh, we're, we're a mosaic right, of, of God's goodness and his creation. Every person is an image bearer of God, worthy of love and dignity. And, and that is not just fellow Christians, but fellow humans. But where James brings us is that it's especially then, that should be on display especially within the church and our interactions. And what does he hone in on? Well, he's talked about it before. It's our mouths. <laughs> it's what we say in one very simple and yet significant way that God's grace should impact us is then how we see and then what we speak about others. Very simple. Yeah, it, there, there's, it encompasses a lot, doesn't it? God's grace working in your life and mine, it should change then the way that you view people, the way that you see others, and then the way that you then speak about others and to others. Now, James has already had words about our words back in chapter 3. Um, if you missed that teaching, I encourage you, you can go back and check it out on our archives or Facebook and these things. But it was a spiritual mouthwashing for us in a good way. But in light of then their bickering, in light of their arguments, in light of them having beef with each other and uh, you know, their prideful hearts, James circles back and he basically says, hey, you shouldn't be trash talking in church. God bless you. You shouldn't be trash talking <laughs> your, your family in Christ. And notice that the emphasis isn't so much uh, about what you say to another person, because he's covered that already. Remember he says, you know, out of your same mouth, you, you bless God and you curse your brother. Remember he says, it, that shouldn't be. But this time, it's not so much what we're saying to another person, but rather what we're saying about another person, what we're saying of another person which ultimately is just gossip and it's slander. And that's what he's talking about here, slander. 
You're, talk, you're speaking evil about somebody. Slander is really just means to malign somebody. You're, you're damaging their reputation, their namesake, their character by sharing. Often it's false or it's purposely misleading or we... we uh, we hold back certain truths, right? And we emphasize other things. And, and, and really, it's just for the purpose then of disparaging them, putting them down or trying to make us look better. And, and what James really just says categorically, it's always sin. It's just sin. And as we're to do with all sin, we're to repent. But the word that he uses holds a, a broader meaning. It includes any form of criticism. In fact, in the original Greek, uh, the root word there, krino, that's where we get the English word criticism from. It's judgment of their person, judgment of their character. And again, as we, we step into this, we, this is where we do need to hit pause just for a moment. Because it's often this verse and, and ones like it, and I would say especially what Jesus says recorded for us in Matthew chapter 7, that, that people like to quote, and yet they forget there's more. <laughs> they, they forget there's a verse within uh, other verses. There's a text within a context of other things. And, and arguably, maybe it's even one of the verses that even non-Christians love to quote and quote sometimes to Christians, right? Where Jesus says, do not judge. And they'll just leave it there. Jesus says, do not, you can't judge me. Don't judge. Right? He goes on to say, or you too will be judged. Sometimes they'll get at least all of that, right? <laughs> Don't judge, or you're going to be judged. Yeah, that's true, but uh, there, there's, there's other verses that follow that. Right? There's other things that Jesus added to that. And I, and I think sometimes people hold up that verse like a police badge. They'll say, you better not judge me or you can't judge me because Jesus said that and so you, you better not do that. Which we would say, okay, that, that's true. Jesus did say that, but that's not the end. That's just where he began. The rest of what Jesus said was recorded for us as well because he goes on to say, verse 6, he says, don't, don't give what is holy to dogs or throw your pearls before swine. If we're being fair to Scripture, we know, okay, he wasn't talking literally about dogs and pigs. Right? He's calling people that, right? He's calling particular groups of that. Like, he likened them to dogs and he likened them to swine. Now, in order for us to then heed verse 6, it requires, guess what, some, some discernment, if you will, some criticism, judgmental decisions about a whether this person is a dog or not, whether this person is a swine or right? Like you, you have to then make an evaluation of a character. If you keep reading in Matthew 7, Jesus goes on to say, and beware of false prophets because they're going to come to you in sheep's clothing. Outwardly, they look and, and, and talk the same, but inwardly, they are like ravenous wolves. And so they, they have a facade. Now, how are we to beware of them, though? How are we going to know? 
Well, it takes discernment, right? It takes evaluation. It takes, it takes a judgment <laughs> to look and say, okay, that person, they're, they're not a true shepherd or they've come in with ulterior motives. It's evaluated. And so it requires then judging a person's teaching, their actions. And so it's often when a, a text is taken out of context, then oh, it's misunderstood, it's misapplied. And even James 4.11 can be uh, misunderstood, taken out of context. And so we have to make sure we keep it within context. And by the way, that's why for us, um, you know, I would say part of the way that we teach the scriptures, and there's many ways to teach scripture in terms of textual and topical and thematic, and they all have their place. But for us, generally, as we're making our way as a church family, we're making our way systematically, inductively through the scripture so that we kind of cover all of it. And trust that God has a word for all of us, and every time that we gather, there's something here that he wants us to know. But, but you know, for even for me, I have to be careful. I don't take a text out of context. We have to look at it all together. And so with James 4.11, we have to understand, how does this fit to the whole? Because we could, in theory, if we didn't understand the whole context, stand up and say to James, foul. You, how can you just tell us not to speak evil of somebody and you just called me an adulterer and you just said I'm a sinner and double-minded? Like, foul, you're a hypocrite, James. You can't say don't judge or speak evil of another person when you just did the same thing. So context matters. <laughs> uh, the, the context of what James is saying in the context of what Jesus had taught uh, is it's a prideful, arrogant, trash-talking judgment. It's unloving. It's unkind. It's a, I'm better than anybody else, or I'm better than you, and so I'm going to put you down and put you in your place. That's the evil he's speaking about. That's the judgment, the brand of judgment he's talking about. Because church family, understand there, there are appropriate places and occasions, as I mentioned, where, where we, we should engage. <laughs> and it's going to seem like a judgment, if you will. It's going to seem like a, a criticism, maybe even a harsh criticism. And again, James has already given us an example himself. It's not judging someone to speak to them uh, in love and about sin. Especially, right, we're talking about brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. In fact, James is going to direct us to do this exact thing right at the close of his letter. Look at chapter 5 real quick. Right at the end, he closes with this. He doesn't even, even sign off, you know, hug, hug, geese, geese. He says, brethren, verse 19, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. How do we uh, turn somebody back from the truth? Well, we have to make an evaluation that they're wandering from the truth. And so it's love in action. And so even James 
you know, prescribes, if you will, and says, hey, th- th- there are times where this is appropriate. And as a family in Christ, I would say that that, that, um, that type of confrontation, although difficult at times, it is still our responsibility, the responsibility of every believer. Paul writes to the Galatians, and he says, hey, th- those of you who've walked with the Lord, uh, when you see somebody who's starting to drift and mess around, right? They're dabbling in sin. They're doing or saying things they shouldn't. Then you go and you confront them, restore them in a spirit of gentleness and in love. Of course, Scripture honors the dignity of the person. Jesus himself talking about that in Matthew chapter, was it 18? Uh, go, go to that person privately. Ha- have a private conversation. Respect them, love them confrontation and love and it begins privately but it goes on though right if they don't want to listen they're like shine you and blowing you off you're dumb why are you going to judge me well we're given principles all right we got to get somebody else hey we love you we're concerned even to the point where if you know it becomes a church family matter and but you know i I want to submit to you that as James writes these things, certainly there's a direct application there. But, but as we consider the culture around us, and dare I say that the culture around us has become a lens that even for us as Christians today, we wrongly view biblical correction. Right? I don't think we've, we even talk about this so much, right? Biblical discipline. Or church family discipline. Confrontation of sin. We live in, in times when the words tolerance and unity and love, by the world's definition, usually means just acceptance regardless of sin. That are dominant in themes really in the church today. And you find, at least by observation for me, that the, the church is adopting the world's definition of unity and love and tolerance. And then if confrontation or preaching against sin, the naming of sin, if that takes place, you, you label someone else's teaching even, right, as unbiblical to say, hey, be careful of this doctrine or this type of uh, churches or these things. I say, oh, that's judgmental. That's not very loving. I, I would lovingly disagree. Make your way through the New Testament and you see that Jesus himself, right, says, hey, be careful, beware. And even Paul the Apostle, right, he, he names names. He'll call out certain people and say, hey, be careful of that person, that group. And so Jesus tells us, be aware. Paul tells us. The New Testament tells us. And the way that I like how Jesus phrased it, he says, you know, here's how you can discern. He, he uses this illustration. By their fruit, he says, you'll know them. And so, on one hand, yeah, we're called, we're not, we're not to judge anybody, and we'll talk about more, but again, I want to pause and make sure that we understand context and the greater context. It's not just a blanket statement for all time, like someone comes who cares about you, you name the name of Jesus, and they say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm concerned, or I love you, and I'm watching this, or you've, I heard you say these things, and they, that's good, (laughs) 
That's a good thing. But by their fruit, we'll know them. And so, you know, we're, we're called to be fruit inspectors, if you will. Discernment is a form of judging. And at times, it means we evaluate, we make a determination. All right, let me, let me just speak practically, too. And we'll pause here for a bit. We need to exercise caution, though. Because where we can get out of bounds in that is that we then are tempted to judge motive or intentions. And often that's not part of the equation, right? And yet we do this so often, don't we? We see something, we, we hear something, and, uh, and instead of just addressing the fact of what we saw, what we heard, we, we then assign motive. We, we assign intention. Oh, they did that because they, and fill in the blank. But the reality is, rarely do we know a person's motive. In fact, this is so common. Any of you realize that when someone often comes, if you've ever had this experience, when someone says, hey, I didn't appreciate what you did or what you said, like it hurt my feelings or I, you know, I was bothered by this, what happens? We, we even in our defense will quickly assume they're attacking our motive. And so usually the response is, well, I didn't mean to. That wasn't my intention. Right? Like, oh, yeah, no, we weren't talking about your intention, just the fact that you did it. And yet we default to that, don't we? That's not my motive. That's not me. And then we want to argue that, like, as though we dismiss then what we did because, well, I intended to. Or that sometimes it's the opposite, right? I forgot this. Well, I intended to. It's the thought that counts. Sometimes. <laughs> But rarely really do we know someone's motive. We can see actions and reactions, but we can't, and we have to be careful, we can't judge a heart. We can't judge their mindset. Two examples come to my own thought and mind. Uh, first is in First Samuel. Some of the ladies are uh, part of the Connect group on Wednesday nights, and they're studying the life of Hannah, and I'm not sure if you've gotten here yet, but in First Samuel chapter 1, verse 12 we read, it says, and it happened as Hannah was praying before the Lord that the priest there, Eli, is watching her. And it says that he watched, he saw her mouth and her mouth is moving, but no words are coming out. She, she's just praying in her heart before the Lord. And if you know her account, right, she's broken, she's sad, she's asking God, you know, she's, there's emotion there. And so she's speaking in her heart, her lips are moving, but there's nothing, there's no words, audible words coming out. And then it says, Eli, therefore, watching her, thought she was loaded, right? So he thought she was drunk. And then he engages her, hey, my paraphrase, get out of here, you're your drunkenness. He misjudged her. Well, he saw the action, but he misjudged the motive, right? He, he misjudged the reality, the, the intention in her heart, accuses her of something she didn't do. Again, people do that all the time. We, we assume something that's not true. We watch and see, and yet we don't just engage that. We, we make assumptions. The same thing happened in Joshua chapter 22. The tribes of Israel were fighting get to go claim their land, they're done. The eastern tribes move off. They're like, all right, we, we satisfied our commitment to the Lord. We, we all banded together as a band of brothers and we fought back the enemy. Now we're going to go home. Now we're going to build our houses. And as they cross over the eastern side of the Jordan, 
they decide, you know what, we want to honor God. They built this altar. They start stacking these rocks as a memorial to the, to the goodness of God so that they won't forget how God was so good to them. Well, word gets back to the western side. Just the fact that they did it. Oh, they built an altar. And the western side assumes that the eastern, their brothers, did that as idolatry. You know the account? You can read it later. What do they do? They mount up for war. They mount up for war, and they're going to go, and they're going to execute judgment on their brothers for a false assumption because they heard something that happened, which was factual, and yet they assigned the wrong motive. How many times do we go to blows with somebody because we assume that we know their motive or their intention? And they realize the real reason, and they're like, oh, our bad. <laughs> I don't know how many fights and difficulties I have seen, and I admit that I, I have found myself engaged in as the result of misjudgment of a person's intention and their motive or their heart. Now, again, there needs to be a delineation, right? We doesn't mean that the action or the behavior or the attitude was uh, right. But again, sometimes we, we assign a motive that's non-existent. And so, you know what the application from all that is? It's really simple. Give the person the benefit of doubt, first and foremost. And then if you have a question about why they did something, guess what the Bible says? Go ask them. <laughs> that's so simple. Yet, how many times we don't do that, right? We, we walk around and we're like, I wonder why so-and-so did that. What were they thinking? Why would they decide this? God says, go ask them. You want to know the reason? Go ask them. You know, what happens? We, we disparage people, right? We, we, like, we walk around like, I can't believe they did that. Can you believe that they did that? Why did they do that? I don't know why they did that. What were they thinking? Did you see what they posted? And there it goes. Again, if we don't, we become guilty of what James is describing here. We, we speak evil of one another. We, we speak evil of a, of a brother or a sister. We judge them. And when we do, we then speak evil of the law. We judge the law. He says, but if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. And again, sometimes the event can be true, but we assign a motive or Sometimes the, it can be true, but we haven't forgiven them. In other words, we need to check our own motives. We need to check our own motive when we start talking about somebody. Are we lifting them up? Are we putting them down? Are we wanting just to make ourselves look justified or right or righteous? So we put somebody else down to make ourselves look better. He says, he who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. So when we move into this territory, when we begin to talk trash about someone, we slander their character. We don't give them the benefit of doubt. We haven't gone to them and asked them, hey, why did you do that? then we're judging them outside of what God has prescribed. And James says, then we make ourselves the standard 
We make our views. We make our judgment. We make our convictions. That becomes the measurement. And so James basically says, then you're judging God's law. You're making yourself better than God. You're, in a sense, you're even trashing the word of God. When you and I are guilty of judging others wrongly. Because what happens? We're using man's standards rather than the word of God. The Pharisees were, were guilty of this, like, often. I mean, they even, they even judged Jesus and the disciples. And it wasn't on the word of God, right? Remember, often it was on man's tradition. It was on rituals and rules that they had created. And, and so there's, a, there's a, um, a principle there for us. I think it's important we take away. There's a call to caution. We, we have to be very careful then how we hold others to our personal convictions and, and our personal standards. Because the Spirit of God working in your life is going to lead you and your marriage, if you're married, and your family, if you have a family. And, and it's going to look a little different than the family maybe sitting next to you or the couple that's, you know, behind you. God's grace calls us, transforms us by his love and his mercy. But the reality is we're at different places in our walk. We're at different seasons, some of us have been walking with the Lord for a while, and some of us, uh, you know, you're, you're new in your faith. And so, Scripture calls us then to spur each other on, speak the truth in love. And yes, we're called then to share our testimonies and our, and our stories. Paul says, follow my example of life as I follow Christ. And so we get to see how God's worked in this marriage and that family and that season of singleness. How do I navigate these trials at my workplace? And so it's good that we have this, the body of Christ, that we spur each other on and encourage each other and uplift each other. But, but we have to be careful then how we uh, impose and or expect others then to do exactly the same things when it comes to our convictions. So be very cautious with that. We don't want to create a line where God hasn't. Where the Spirit hasn't declared definitively for every believer, but's directed you. And there's a lot of areas. We can spend a lot of time talking about all these various areas, right? And sometimes they become points of contention, even within the body of Christ. Homeschool is one. Tattoos alcohol, what movies you watch, or you let your kids watch, whether you subscribe to Netflix or not. What else? Fashion, someone's hair color, parenting methods, worship styles, political affiliations, uh, social media, and the list goes on and on. Certainly we can look to scripture and I think the Bible provides principles in these areas and there are times where the Bible provides a boundary line. But there's great freedom and grace. And so we're going to look a little different. We're going to operate a little different. And by the way, I think that's a great thing. The Spirit leads each of us. But, so let's be careful with that. 
He goes on to say in that same verse, though, but if you judge the law, you're not a doer of it, then you become a judge. You know, the sin of slander is wrong for two main reasons. The first is it breaks the commandment that Jesus amplified when he was asked, what's the most important commandment? What's the greatest commandment? And the Lord said, right, recites the Shema, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your strength, all of your soul, and all of your um, mind and, yeah, and mind, right? And then he says, and the second is like it. Right? He attaches this, and to love your neighbor as yourself, and to love others. And then he says, all of the command, all of the prophets and the commands basically hang on these two. They stem from these, they flow out of these two things. Love God and love others. Matthew chapter 22. And so, first we, 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 we sin and slander because then we break that command. We're not loving others. And then secondly, as he tells us here, when we slander and judge others, we sin because we're taking a role in a place that only God holds. It belongs to God. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we are tremendously biased in our judgments, right? We're tremendously biased in our evaluations. We're not, we're not impartial. We're partial. And we are because we're sinful. That, that's the reality, right? We're, we're selfish and we're sinful. I mean, one of the most common complaints against leaders and rulers and even those that we see in, in leadership today, well, what do we say about them? They're hypocrites, right? It's the rules for thee and not for me. And yet we're so, you know why we recognize that so easily? Because that's our nature. That's why that's our nature. Like, I love it when other people follow the traffic laws. Like, oh, Lord, but you know, God, there's grace. I'm going to hurry. You'll forgive me. Right? Oh, we're so easy to forgive ourselves, right? We're, we're, we're so easy to, to make our own rules. We count people, like how many items are in their basket. Eleven things. This is a ten-item checkout, you know. <laughs> We want justice for others, but for us, we want mercy, right? We want leniency. And so putting others down really reveals then, oh, we, we place ourselves as judge. And we judge somebody else, we're placing ourselves in the same place as the law. And so that's what James is saying. In effect, then you judge the law. You're saying, ah, oh, it's not good enough. I'm going to be my standard, my way. We set ourselves above it. And so James basically says, you have no authority to do that. Why? That last part, or well, verse 12, excuse me. He says, because there's one lawgiver. <laughs> there's only one person that sits in that seat, and it's not you. There's one lawgiver who is able, notice this, to save and to destroy there's a little bit of a sobering sting here. It reminds me what Jesus said and recorded in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, where he says, hey, do not fear those that kill the body, but they're unable to kill your soul. 
but rather fear God. Fear him who can destroy both the soul and your body. God able to judge into, or excuse me, save and to destroy because God is the perfect judge. He is perfectly impartial. And since he is, we can then let him judge perfectly because that's who he is. We see things skewed. We see things often from uh, you know, our own personal selfish lens. And so sadly then the effects of our judgment are often hurtful and damaging. Because you've been on the receiving side of that, right? When someone has judged you, said things to you or about you that were untrue, disparaged you, dragged your name through the mud. Another idiom. I don't, does that translate into Japanese? Right? Talk trash about you. You know, we, we don't like that. Like, hey, they don't, they don't know the whole story. They don't know what's happening, my background. And, and gang, we're the same way, understand? We, we don't know the whole story. We don't know what God is doing in a person's life. The story of grace is still being written in their life as it is in our life. We don't have the complete picture. And it's because we don't have the complete picture, we have to refrain then from making judgment. But God knows and God sees. And so he's the lawgiver. He can save. He can destroy. So what is our part then? It's not, it's not necessarily in here. So let me just offer a little bit. Our spiritual default then, if it's not to judge, what is it? It's to love. Right? It's to love. Because God can see. And so when God sees, and notice again, over and over again, he reminds us that we're family. And Jesus said, here's how the world's going to know you belong to me by your love for one another. And so we, we, we need to see them as God sees them. Our spiritual default then should be not judgment and holier than thou, but to love people because God loves people and to see them as God sees them. You remember that scene? Uh, it's... It's Jesus, the disciples, they're walking along. It's in John 9. And there's a, there's a blind man, and he's, and he's begging. And the disciples don't necessarily say, oh, hey, let's give this guy some money. They see him, and he becomes a, he becomes a topic of theological debate. And they, they say, hey, see that guy, Jesus? Why is he like that? And they offer their own they, they just put two questions as though that was the only option. Is he blind from birth because who sinned, him or his parents? Is it A or B, Jesus? <laughs> and the Lord says, it's, it's C, right? It's not, it's not A or B. It's not because he sinned or his parents sinned, but that the works of God, that the glory of God might be manifested in his life. And, and again, sometimes we walk along and we think, oh, they just, we make these judgments. See, we, we want to be the spiritual police. And God's called us to be the spiritual paramedics. And, you know, police, when they come on a scene, they're primarily concerned 
right, Matthew? Primarily concerned with who broke the law, what's the infraction, who's guilty. Let's lock them up. Let's arrest them. Let's make, give them a citation. Take them away. That's the lens of the police. Paramedics, when they come on scene, they're not so much concerned with who broke the law. They, they want to know who's hurt. Who needs attention? Who's wounded? How, how can we bring healing and restoration of, of just well-being? Too many of us think, oh, God's called me to be the police. No, God, God's called us to be the paramedics. It's love that, that builds others up. And so when we talk poorly about others, that's not reflective of God's heart of love. We grieve him when we do that. Rather, we should be building others up. And then he just asks, who are you to judge another? Right there at the end of verse 12. Who are you? Who are you to judge another? It might be phrased this way. Who do you think you are? (laughs) Yeah, who are we? To to answer that question, honestly, we'd say, well, we're sinners saved by grace. That's who we are. And therefore, we have no right then to cast ourselves higher, better than others. We have no right then to uh, judge another person outside of, of loving them, you know, loving concern for them, as we talked about, encouragement and spurring them on. Just to disparage or downcast them that I might you know, lift myself up. Paul wrote something very interesting, and we'll close here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you're familiar with the letter Corinthians, there's a lot of different themes that run through that letter, but one of them is that uh, there was a group of people that were trash-talking Paul, and they were trying to influence the Corinthians who began to kind of believe what these others were saying about Paul, and they're disparaging him. And they were attacking him, how he looked at times even, like, (laughs) so petty, right? Attacked even, like, his credentials. And so then Paul engages that. And he says, you know, I care very little, however, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 3 through 5. I care very little, however, if I'm judged by you, really any human court. And he says, in fact, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't vindicate me. He says, ultimately, it's the Lord. God is the one who judges me. Therefore, he says, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes, and he'll bring to light that's hidden in the darkness, and he'll expose the motive of men's heart, because we don't know motive, right? And I like that. I like what Paul says. He just says, listen, I'm going to let God judge others. In fact, I'm going to let God judge me. I don't even judge myself. Because Paul knows the standard of our measurements are often messed up. We, we evaluate based upon comparison to others. Myself compared to somebody else, and you do the same thing, right? You're like, oh, I'm not as bad as that person. Seems to be. See, we use the wrong metric. And sometimes we use the wrong metric even for ourselves. And this is where hopefully you can be encouraged. I think it's, you know, I've heard it said, we don't measure the importance or the value of a fish by its ability to climb a tree. 
the wrong metric. But we do that with people all the time, don't we? And we do that with ourselves all the time. Oh, I can't do this specific thing. I'm not in this particular place in my life. Or they're not. Therefore, that means that I'm worthless or I'm unimportant or they are. Listen, that's the wrong metric. That's a flawed criteria. And so Paul says, ah, I don't even judge myself. I'll let God take care of that. And then he adds, don't judge anything before it's appointed time. And I like that. Let's end here. Everybody is a work in progress. And grace is still working in your life and in mine as it is in theirs. I want to judge a cake when it's only halfway baking. Or a building when it's halfway built. And yet we do that with people. We judge others who are works in progress just like us. And so what's the takeaway as we close? Let's just leave the work of judging to God. Amen? And let's just see others as God sees them and their potential and their calling. And let's be the paramedics and love them and build them up. There's enough police. There's enough spiritual police. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, these two verses. The richness thereof. Your spirit of grace who speaks in our hearts. It also convicts us. Because Lord, we know that with our mouths we can... We can say and have thought some pretty mean and harsh things. Lord, forgive us for trash-talking others. We certainly don't like it when it happens to us. And so, Lord, may we be those that rise above, give the benefit of doubt. To be above those things, even if we begin to hear them, that, Lord, we would speak well of each other. That we'd look for good things in people's lives. And, Lord, in those occasions where... It's appropriate that, yeah, we would go and engage privately and lovingly to spur each other on for good works and godliness. But Lord, more, more often than not, it's, it's really because we're, we're using the metric of ourselves or our convictions or what we think is right. And so, Lord, forgive us for putting ourselves at the place of judge. There's only one righteous judge. That's you. So we'll let you do your job, Lord, and for us, as you've called us, help us to love and support, encourage, and build each other up. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, church family, love you guys. I pray that you have an amazing rest.